Welcome back to Now, the podcast celebrating a variously compiled world of pop. In each episode, a variety of fabulous guests and I explore favourite compilation albums, as well as considering how these collections shaped pop culture and now fondly stand as time captures for our own musical and life milestones. I hope that you will enjoy the pop memories in this episode. Please follow the show through your favourite podcast provider and join in with me, Ian, on the Pop Rambler Twitter, Facebook and Instagram pages. Joining me for this episode is author and chief rock and pop critic for The Times, Will Hodgkinson. Will's published music books include Guitar Man, described as classic obsessional non-fiction for a nation of guitar freaks, and includes the story of his own journey to learn the instrument. Song Man, where Will similarly explores the magic of songwriting with, amongst others, Keith Richards, Ray Davis and Bridget St. John in his efforts to cut his own single, and The Ballad of Britain, which seeks to explore whether folk music still exists in a meaningful sense and to see how regional variations contribute to a collective musical Britishness. Will has also written his childhood memoir, The House is Full of Yogis, which tells the story of how his family went from being boring suburbanites to meditating freaks after his father had a revelation and joined an Indian spiritual cult called the Brahma Kumaris. And in 2022, Will published In Perfect Harmony, sing-along pop in 70s Britain, a social history on the decade of the IRA strikes, the three-day week, and the winter of discontent. And of course, the colourful, upbeat music that provided its soundtrack. Will, welcome back to now. Thank you very much, Ian. It is fabulous to have you here. So let's talk about In Perfect Harmony, a book that starts with Grandad in 1970 and finishes with Grandma, We Love You in 1980. Uh, what was the inspiration for revisiting the 70s in this way? Well, I've always loved the 70s in general. Um, but not really typically this kind of music. You know, my like most music snobs, I liked, you know, Sirius, Rolling Stones, Led Zeppelin, whatever, you know, soul and funk and everything. But I, I always kind of did really like a lot of this stuff, especially the kind of glam stuff, the kind of, you know, the sort of more basic, what I call bricky glam, you know, Slade, Sweet, as opposed to high glam of Roxy Music and Bowie. And it occurred to me, when I was reading, the real inspiration, I should say, is those big music books um, by people like um, Simon Reynolds, you know, um, Barney Hoskins, which, you know, which takes something very well thought of, like punk or psychedelia, and give it a kind of big, proper look at social context and the whole thing. And I thought, well, what about all the music that will never appear in Mojo magazine, that no one takes seriously, that is considered naff, unstylish, recherche, you know, just and just plain bad, and take it seriously? Mm. Because this stuff sold in the millions. And I thought, well, if a song like Grandad, for example, which everyone laughs at, you know, it's, it's, it's been so successful, well, A, it's got something about it that connects, something clever going on, and B, it meant something to everyday people. It wasn't just for cult group of music fans. It, it meant something for just, you know, the kids, the mums and dads, the grannies and grandpas. So that was the inspiration. It's basically a social history, really. And the more I looked at it, the more I came to appreciate and respect a lot of this music, because often it's just so cleverly done. You know, I don't know, a song like Give Me That Ding by Pipkins, which would always end up on in the 90s you know it'd always end up on those world's worst songs programs and i listened to it I thought, this isn't this isn't world's worst song it's one of the world's best songs it's so clever it's just one hook after another so that was yeah that was the inspiration there's a line in the book 
that kind of resonates with that, where you say that so much of this music was to try to take people out of themselves? Well, it was, the 70s was a difficult time. It was, the, it was the time of the three-day week mass um, mass strikes, which is really bringing the country to its knees. And at the same time, as serious poverty. And a lot of parallels to now. I mean, you know, they, in 73, we were joining Europe, you know, in, in uh, more recently, we left it. Um, you know, um, we were suffering from the same kinds of things, of mass inflation, you know, a cost of living crisis, all of these things. It was very, very similar to what's going on today. So, yeah, I think that the the music was very much a product of that. I mean, it was, you know, the ultimate song like that is Merry Christmas, Everybody by Slade, because that was in the three day week. You know, they couldn't have known it when they re- recorded it, which is, of course, in the summer. But, you know, that really was the soundtrack to a time when people really didn't have much. Uh, you know, the telly was blinking off at half past 10. You'd have to limit the amount of, you know, their blackouts the whole time, games of can- Monopoly by Candlelight, all this stuff, which I can vaguely, vaguely remember. Mm. But yeah, it was it was such a cheerful, hopeful song that it was kind of what people needed, which I think is partly why it was such a massive success. I have to ask you something um, that you said in the book as well, which, which I thought was wonderful. A book like this takes on its own momentum and it tells you where to go. Could you explain what that means? Because I think I know what yeah, it means. Yeah, of course. Basically, what happened was is that I started and very quickly it felt clear that the story of the decade was telling me where to go with the music, if, if you see what I mean. Yeah. You know, one thing followed another. I kind of had a sense of what I needed to do. So, for example, the big struggle I had was punk because I knew that I had to cover punk somehow. But punk isn't sing-along pop. Um, it's been covered endlessly. There's so many brilliant books on punk. What else could I do? And I thought, well, the point of this book is that I'm writing about, in a way, I'm not really writing about the music. I'm really writing about the people. And I thought what I'm writing about here is the what was happening to kids, mums and dads, teenagers, you know, just very normal, most pro- predominantly working class people all, all over Britain. And so with punk, I thought, well, how did they look at it? And mm. of course, they looked at it with a great deal of amusement. And quite a lot of affection, you know, the media or the, the tabloids were doing all these scare stories. But if you look at all the, look at Jackie magazine and Oh Boy and the comics of the time, they all loved the punks. You know, they thought they were funny and colourful and interesting. And I remember thinking that because I'd have been six, seven. And, you know, spotting a punk is almost as good as a trip to the zoo. It was so exciting. Kind of one of the things that, that we often touch upon in this podcast is the democracy, the UK charts. And that's one of the themes that I felt reading through the book that actually, again, you know, particularly through difficult times, the UK charts are just this kaleidoscope of all sorts of different things. And, you know, often often in this country as well, we're very good at making our own version of something. You know, you talk a lot about Barry Blue, for example, and, you know, how how in the UK we kind of took disco from the Americans and turn it into something very, very British. That's completely true. Barry Blue did that. There's a whole sort of suburban disco movement. I mean, Tina Charles, Linda Lewis, all these people. Bidu, who's who's actually from India, but came over here and, and did his own kind of suburban disco vision, you know, and a lot of it ended up on the soundtrack to The Stud, the Jane Collins movie, which was basically... Uh, 70s Brits idea of getting sexy it's kind of posh people being sexy which is can be a contradiction in terms but um, it was yeah it was it was a (laughs) a terrible film in many ways but it it was very redolent of the time Uh, you know a bunch of kind of Sloan Rangers dancing badly at a club which is clearly based on Tramp I do think we have that have that thing and I do think that in Britain at the time and this is something people kept telling me because I interviewed a lot of people for the book Everything was smaller. There wasn't a huge amount of money. 
you know, it'd be quite normal. Some, you know, be a band to be working on a building site one week and be on top of the pops the next. And in the early days, of the, in the early years of the seventies, it was a tiny little group of people who are basically making all the hits. It, there was uh, Roger Greenaway, Roger Cook, who were the songwriters, uh, Tony Burrows and Sue and Sonny were the singers, uh, Herbie Flowers and Clem Cattini and actually Jimmy Page uh, were among the session musicians. And they basically played on everything. And, you know, the idea was is that they would come up with a song and then invent a band to play it. So you'd have situations like on the same 1973, I think it was, no, earlier, it's the same 1970 episode of Top of the Pops where you had Tony Burroughs pretending to be the lead singer of four different bands at once. I think it's Pipkin's Gimme That Thing, Brotherhood of Man, United We Stand. Edison Lighthouse. What's the Love Grows, where my rosemary goes. And uh, My Baby Loves Loving by White Plains. None of whom existed. Nope. You know, nope. It was all invented. This fantastic story of Tony Burroughs basically swapping clothes and running around the <laughs> pop studio. It's it, it's fantastic. And obviously the music union getting particularly perturbed at the whole situation as well. Yeah. So. The music union got fed up with it. There's a guy called Dr. Death who went around and his, it was his job. He was basically trying to protect musicians, but he was a bit of a King Canute trying to stop the tide, you know, of, of the inevitable tide. So, you know, he, his, his idea was that if you're performing on top of the pops, even though it's mimed, you have to, it's a recording and, and you have to hire musicians. And so you must record a new version. Well, of course, these songs were put together in studios over a long period of time. And then suddenly they're told, right, you're on top of the pops on the next Wednesday. Uh, you've got to record a new version in two hours. So what everyone did, um, right, here we go, we're going to get working. And then they'd, they'd say, well, there's nothing to do for the next two hours. So let's go down the pub. Uh, take him down the pub, get him completely pissed, and then swap the tapes. And so they just had the original one, and he thought they they were playing the new one. It's all kinds of tricks like that that were going on. For a lot of people that can remember the seventies, a lot of um, fond memories. I think of yeah, I don't mean particularly difficult times, but but they were. And the fact that pop music offered this escapism. Oh, that's definitely true. I mean, the thing is, is that you know, okay, for the, you know, my parents were pretty middle class. We lived in suburbia. We we weren't suffering particularly. We just you know we had the same. Uh, blackouts and you know uh, the winter of discontent same as everyone else but there was a lot of fun to be had um it was also a period i think that was very much in this is more of a middle class thing i think it was very much uh you know you had the 60s which only really happened for a few people and for the 70s certainly my parents would fit into this category they were working class people that went to university and kind of went for the suburban dream so to speak but there was quite a lot of experimentation you know, they'd be discovering Indian spirituality or feminism or, you know, there'd be a Buddha on the mantelpiece and a copy of I'm OK, You're OK on the bookshelf. And, you know, maybe uh, Fear of Flying by Elka Jong and, you know, this idea of sexual liberation, but maybe a little bit fearful of it. I mean, do you remember Butterflies, the programme Butterflies? Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, I think that was late 70s, early 80s, but that captured it for me because, there you have Rhea, and she's kind of nervously edging towards an affair that she never quite has. She doesn't want to give up her family and, and her nice home and her boring dentist husband. But at the same time, she's frustrated and bored. And, and I thought that, that slight fearfulness really captured a British sensibility. Mm. And again, you know, when you said earlier on about what, where, where the book kind of told me where to go, you wouldn't think that butterflies would be relevant for the book, but somehow it was. Because I, was, I think what I was trying to do is trying to go for that suburban. British soul 
which somehow manifests itself in music. And at the same time, you're dealing with everything that was going on in the country at the time. So yeah, butterflies. Yeah, I mean that sort of in a way, butterflies captured the spirit of the book more than any song. So you touched there about growing up. How did how did music come into your life? What were those kind of first influences? The first, well, the first things would have been stuff that I heard in my dad's record collection. My dad didn't have that many records. They were very young parents. They got married at I think they were still at university when they got married in Newcastle. Um, and they were 20, 21. They had my brother, I think, by 20, maybe when they were still 21. And by 23, they had two kids. They had me. And they were working very hard. So they didn't really engage in pop culture particularly. But he actually, my dad actually had quite good taste. So he had uh, Roxy Music, the first two albums. Um, so you had the first album, then you had For Your Pleasure. And I remember being absolutely fascinated by For Your Pleasure because music was amazing, but it was the way it looked that kind of suggested that pop, and it is pop really, could be about other worlds. You know, you had this incredible cover of this woman called Amanda Lear and sort of insanely glamorous with these teetering on these sadistically high heels, you know, sort of contorted into this rubber dress. And she's got a panther on the leash just to add to the glamour. And then, you know, you open the gatefold and you see um, Brian Ferry in some kind of limousine, you know, just watching her and laughing and loving it. And then you open it. And I couldn't work out if some of them, I couldn't work out if they're men or women. Um, I thought Brian Eno was a, you know, a balding woman, sadly a, a woman who's losing her hair at an early age. I knew that uh, Phil Manzanera was a man because he had a beard. The whole thing was just absolutely fascinating. It was transformative, I suppose, is the word. It felt like such a different, different, exciting world. So that was, that was early on. Then they had like ABBA, which yeah. was far more accessible. And I remember my dad saying, it's really very bland, but there's something rather charming about it. And I, I kind of know what he means. You know, it is bland, really, ABBA. But, you know, they're very, very melancholic, those songs, aren't they? And I'd listen to them and they're so... They're so easy for kids to listen to and enjoy because there's just one hook after another. So I used to like that. They had The Carpenters, which I sort of knew even then was square. I think it was very obvious that it was square and kind of the white picket fence America, but I like those songs. And then if I'm going to be honest, I think the key musical influence would have been The Muppet Show yeah. because The Muppet Show used to have guests. And obviously every kid loves The Muppet Show. I mean, you know, who doesn't love Kermit? But, you know, I think they had Debbie Harry on The Muppet Show and maybe Shirley Bassey and, you know, um, Paul Williams, who wrote all those songs. And, of course, Bugsy Malone. I just loved it. I never didn't know Paul Williams at that time. I, you know, it, it, I didn't bother to look and find out who did the songs. But I remember loving the songs of Bugsy Malone, just thinking that it's just fantastic. And The Muppet Show is great. So I think they're probably the earliest influences. I'm talking about pre-record buying times. Yeah. And what about buying records then? Can you remember when that happened? I can, yeah. So the first album I bought was Searching for the Young Soul Rebels by Dex's Midnight Runners. And this was because I heard the song Gino, mm. I think on the radio, and it just blew me away. Mm. And so this is a slightly older. I was now about 10, I think I was. in 90, If it came out in 1980, I would have been 10. So there was that. I had Toast by the Q-Tips, which was the song by Paul Young, or Paul Not-So-Young, as the Smash <laughs> uh, Hits used to call him. Um, or, or was it Paul, uh, Paul, uh, Paul Quotation Marks Young, didn't they? He used to call him. Yeah. And that went, 
I like toast. Brown bread, white bread doesn't really matter much. It comes with funny packages, writing on the side. I like toast. So, so that was my introduction to incredibly naff rap. And then there was punk. Okay, so bear in mind, punk happened in 76, 77. We're now talking 79, 80. So I was late to the party on that respect. But I had a cousin who was a punk. I can't remember where he lived, somewhere in suburbia. Um, we went round to his place and he was a very rebellious. I mean, he had um, a badge, you know, Sex Pistols badge. Uh, he didn't have a Mohican or anything, but he had a couple of, he had punk records. He had Knights in White Satin by the Dickies. Oh, yeah. You remember them? Yes. <laughs> and, yeah. <laughs> Then I, I bought Nevermind the Bollocks by the Sex Pistols. I remember listening to that and just being amazed that you're allowed to swear on an album. That seemed incredible to me and very, very exciting. And of course, actually, now you listen to that album, those songs are brilliant. You know, yeah. Pretty Vacant is just a, a brilliant pop song. They're fantastic. Mm. Um, the other thing that would have come into it was reggae. I never knew much about reggae, but there was weirdly, once I discovered the radio, there's a lot of reggae on Radio 1. It used to be on at night. And, I, and you know, this, is, this was the classic thing of, of you know, going under your covers is when my parents moved to a new house and me and Tom got our own bedrooms, you know, I got a, a little clock radio, I think it was, and I'd listen to it underneath the covers, just whatever it was on. And I didn't really know what reggae was, but that seemed very exciting to me at the time. It was very laid back, very different, and something quite alluring about that world. Mm. So yeah, those were the early things, and then and then again, Tom, my brother, would, would have been an influence because he, being those two years older, he discovered see, cool music. He discovered mm. the Cramps, psychedelic jungle. That was fascinating to me. And then a couple of years after that, there's an album which he had called "These Cats Ain't Nothing But Trash." It's a compilation album featuring three very unknown bands. One was called the Cannibals. One was called the Stingrays. One was called the Milkshakes. The Milkshakes went on to be quite well known because Billy Childish was, oh. who's, who's a famous kind of outsider artist and so on. But they were what they were garage bands. Yeah. And the reason I mention them is because they led to my first ever gigs. There's a place called the Clarendon in Hammersmith, and my brother took me to see the Stingrays. <laughs> This was 1983 when I was 13, and it was a tiny, smelly little basement. But I should add, I didn't get in. I literally went down these stairs, and I saw these people who looked like exotic creatures, you know, with like big, you use boots, firm hold hairspray in those days. And so there'd be like, you know, these giant quiffs and Mohicans, and just like, oh my God, who are these people? They can't, they can't have parents, you know, they, there's no way they can have parents or even homes, really. You know, they just live in another subterranean universe. And I got a glimpse of them, and I remember the guy on the door said, There's no way you're 18, which I definitely wasn't. I hadn't even hit puberty. And, uh, and I was kicked up <laughs> back outside. But then I went back a year later and I did manage to get in. Um, and so that was my introduction to the underground world of gigs and all that kind of stuff, which was incredibly exciting. A very, very important figure was David Bowie, as he is in so many people. And the way it went for me is that on my 10th birthday, um, my parents had some friends who I thought were pretty groovy. You know, they were kind of, they lived in a lovely house and they were, they were very good looking and stylish and they just seemed really cool. You know, I just loved them. Um, Sandy was her name, and she gave me a copy of Scary Monsters Super Creeps. I didn't really know who he was. And on the same weekend, 
she sat me down and played me some other records and she played me Transformer by Lou Reed. Mm. And she told me that, that on the back cover, there's a picture of a butch guy and um, a very, very feminine woman. And she said, that's the same person. And I was like, wow. It wasn't the same person. <laughs> it's two completely no, different no. people. But I didn't know that. The woman's called Gala Mitchell, and she was, uh, she was a pretty famous model in the 70s. I can't remember who the guy was. He was like, uh, you know, he, I think he was somebody someone knew from the Warhol crowd. But anyway, she played me that album. I thought, this is amazing. And it, it, my introduction to that, that world. Mm. And the Bowie album was fantastic. And then maybe a couple of years later, so I think I was probably about 12, I went on... Um, a weekend break with my best school friend. They had like a country place, little cottage. And we went with his sister who I had a massive crush on because she was 14 and seemed like the coolest person in the world. And she sat me down next to the fireplace. This is probably a romantic memory more than a, more than a musical one, but very important. Um, thwarted romance, I should add. She sat me down and she played me Hunky Dory in full. And for each song, she explained what they meant. So she'd be going, playing Andy Warhol, and she'd, she'd be saying, well, now, this is, a, this is an artist called Andy Warhol in America. He's what's called a pop artist. <laughs> and then she'd play, oh, you pretty things, and she'd say, and this song is about how all the switched-on kids are going to take over the world. They're going to be called the homo superiors, and they're going to get rid of all the old ways, get rid of the parents who are going to have this new life of all the switched-on groovy people. And I was just going, wow. And I was like, completely in love with her. That was my big revelatory moment, sitting by that fireplace, listening to Hunky Dory, which is still one of my all-time favourite albums. The cover I could work out because he, he looked like Marlene Dietrich. Mm. And, you know, this was the thing. When, when, I, when I look back at so much of this stuff, when I, I mentioned Roxy Music and Bowie, it was very what would now be called kind of trans culture. Mm. It was all about upending gender norms, you know, Bowie famously was uh, um, announced that he was gay and he always has been, which he wasn't really, but he'd, he, it was all about ex exploration and a new openness, and which is fascinating to me as well. I remember going through my parents' vinyl and my dad had a copy of the Changes Bowie album and being absolutely fascinated with the cover of it, but that black and white photograph and just, it was the minimalism of the cover, you know, even, you know, on the back of it, I think it was still playing on the kind of station to station iconography red font on the white background you know there was no other explanation the songs where they came from and just you know it was such a gateway album for me because I think it looked and sounded this must have been probably mid-80s and it just looked and sounded like nothing else yeah that's completely true it really opened up your your mind and and made it very very exciting um and it's funny isn't it because I was listening to this stuff in it would have been 1982 Bowie was by then into his almost into I think it was the time of let's dance and you know let's be a big MTV star but it's interesting to think that this music was a little over 10 years old so you'd think that teenagers wouldn't be interested in it but we were absolutely fascinated in it and that never went away throughout my teenage years and now and you know throughout adulthood and now even my kids my teenage kids getting into you know and just knowing that there's something special here and something interesting and creative. So Bowie is the key figure, and obviously that's hardly original, but that's because he was so brilliant at doing something that was accessible, but full of ideas. Let's move on then to your chosen period. You, you are taking us back to 1993. 
1993 was a very important year for me. Firstly, I met my wife, um, but I met my wife in a certain place. I, I know that nightclubs are not play, not known for uh, fostering very, very long-term relationships, you know, with two kids later. But this is what happened. Okay, so let me just go back a little bit. In about a year previously, I'd left university and my girlfriend had finished with me and I was heartbroken, absolutely heartbroken. It's like that time when I think everyone's got to go through it. You've got to go through that one big breakup. So I was absolutely shattered. But it was also it's leaving university, not knowing what I was going to do with my life. I moved back in with my mum, you know, in her little flat in, in Labrador Grove and didn't know what to do. I was just working in a health food shop. So I saved up some money. I thought I've got to change the backdrop. I saved up some money and went to India for six months, traveled around. Very, very, you could go incredibly cheaply then. And I had this amazing time and it kind of cleared my head. And when I came back, I was ready to get on with my life. I started work at a publishing company called Dorling Kindersleep. I think in 1993, I would have been either the receptionist or the post boy. I think I was the post boy, actually. I remember that. That was the better one. Receptionist is quite boring, but being the postboy is quite a laugh because, you know, people yeah. would be quite, you know, you go around and people would be quite pleased to see you and, you know, quite flirtatious and all this kind of stuff. I Before I'd gone to India, I discovered this club called Smashing. It was a friend of mine called Martin Green, who's a DJ, and he'd already DJed this amazing club called Tung Kung Fu, which is more kind of beatnik. It's the acid jazz period and, you know, it's all quite groovy. And Smashing was much more camp. And it was this incredible combination where they'd, the the crowd was fantastic. The crowd was like so some sort of people who are into the sixties, and I'd I'd been really into the sixties, the whole kind of mod scene and stuff. But the more flamboyant ones, very gay as well, in a weird way, not in a cruisy way. You know, like kind of much more new sort of the people in the gay scene who felt outcast from that. You know, the the the, the oddballs. Right, the, the the host was this incredibly flamboyant character called Matthew Glamour, who looked like Jesus at the time, and he used to wear these long flowing robes and and the music was a revelation that you could play this kind of music in a nightclub because they would play everything from Jesus Christ Superstar to, I think they even played the soundtrack, the theme tune to Sesame Street. I mean, just anything. Um, and Bowie, obviously. David Essex, Rock On, that was a favourite. Super obscure stuff. And then just, you know, massive hits that we all knew. Could be T-Rex. It was just really, really fun. Very over the top. Anyway, I'd gone to that before. Then went to India, came back. Britain was in, under quite a lot of, you know, quite a big recession. Mm. So, you know, coming back and trying to get my first real job wasn't the best time for it. But I moved out of my mum's place. I was living in a tiny little place. Some friends of mine lived in the flat in Notting Hill. I mean, this is Notting Hill 93, not Notting Hill now. Yeah. Um, and they had the room I had, which is 40 quid a week, was so small. There was the bed, a single bed was in there and you couldn't open the door fully with a single bed in there. So I don't think it was a room. I think it was actually, it was actually a broom cupboard that I was renting. But anyway, it was exciting. It was my first home away from home, apart from, you know, university years. And I was, you know, I sort of recovered from my heartbreak. I, was, I had a job and I went down to Smashing one night. I saw this amazing woman. She, she's really extreme looking, like she's, she, because she's wearing huge heels. So she had like very, very long blonde hair, which is very, very peroxide. She had these massive, massive heels. And she was just wearing a bikini and these kind of light blue flares. And I thought, bloody hell, she's amazing. She had a gay crowd around her. Turns out because she was actually didn't, she's very shy, actually. And she and she didn't like being hassled by men and everything. And, and you know, 
a gay crowd was the perfect people to be with, you know, so they were, they liked her flamboyance at the same time they didn't hit on her and they were protective and, mm. and so on. I saw her one week of smashing. Then I actually went to Paris and saw my ex, my old girlfriend who had finished it with me. And it was really good because I realized that it was over. Do you know what I mean? Like in my mind, it was over. I remember leaving, it was Saturday night, and I must have got the Eurostar from Paris on Saturday afternoon because I really, really wanted to go to Smashing to see this woman. Um, And I went down there and (laughs) she came down. I was sitting on this little booth and she came down and sat opposite me. So it was obviously waiting for me to say something. But I was so terrible chatting up girls that I just kind of nodded at her. And so she thought I was a twat because I was trying to be so cool. Do you know what I mean? And so she went off to her gay friend and said, he's a twat. There's one guy called Link Leisure, who's an amazing guy. He looked like the, the angel in Barbarella, if you remember him. Oh, yeah, yeah. He sort of looked like that. It's kind of blonde vision. Incredib- incredibly good looking guy. Very charming. Link said, no, no, no. He's just shy. Don't, you know. So later on that night, they were playing Vicious by Lou Reed. I remember it. I started dancing. I thought, if, if all else fails, start dancing. Dance, yeah. And then that's how I met NJ. And so, so that was so. Ninety-three was very important for that reason. But in terms of the whole pop thing, it was a really interesting time for me because Smashing had opened me up to. Before I'd been really into gigs, you know, in, in, as a teenager, I'd really liked gigs. I'd liked the whole underground. I'd been probably very snobbish about mainstream pop music of the type included here. On you know, now that's what I call music. And smashing sort of made me rethink that they could play anything, and they celebrated campness, and you know they celebrated this, this often music. You know, it could be something which you knew was fantastic. They played the Acid Queen by Tommy or some great old soul song, but then it might be something which would be seen as super cheesy. And it made me rethink, you know, the whole idea of what's you know a pop and what's appealing and getting over your own snobbery. Yeah, and that was a really important moment for me. So at the time. NJ and I were going to smashing all the time. We went to clubs all the time. We had absolutely no money, but she had a job working at Catherine Hamlet as their fitting model. And she used to steal all the invitations that Catherine Hamlet was meant to be receiving. And that way we could eat because we'd go to openings and they'd have canapes and champagne. (laughs) So for a while we'd like live. I was paying, I I paid nine and a half thousand pounds a year. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I think she was too. So we we're really living on next to nothing. But you know, you could do it. You could find ways to. You could find ways to do it. So it was. It was a very exciting time. And so that's that's why I've chosen '93. Romantically very important for me. But also the people I met at Smashing, who's since become some of my best friends. A lot of these gay guys who she was hanging around with at the time. They introduced me to a new level of real actual sophistication. You know, a, a different way of looking at the world. A very kind of. Not being earnest, not celebrating, not you know, sort of celebrating the now and um, the unreal. I suppose. Looking back now, nineteen ninety three is a very interesting year. You had the beginning of the nineties. There was the baggy. There was the dance music. There was a lot of optimism, and then you've got the kind of generally accepted mid Britpop period of the nineties. Whereas you've almost got this kind of hinterland in between, which, as you've described was actually fair game to all sorts of amazing pop music, which is often forgotten now. Well, you're completely right. I mean, the only Britpop band, and they don't like being called a Britpop band, was, was Suede. Yeah. Blur was still doing their indie thing. Yeah. And Suede had turned up, and they were singing about um, grimy kitchen sink, a kind of Alan Eckbourne-ish reality of British life. 
Yeah. Really clever, actually. Uh, very provincial. So Suede were the only ones, really. The indie stuff, I'd lost interest in that. I, it seemed studenty, and, you know, I just, just completely lost interest in going to see bands. And, and this whole world of clubs seemed more interesting, but at the same time, I was never into house music in a big way. And this was really the end. This is kind of the fag end of the whole rave thing. Yeah. And the funny thing is, is that, you know, when I look through now, that's what I call music. There's so much Euro rave, you know, <laughs> you know, tra Euro trash, basically, yeah. which, you know, was so looked down upon. Um, but to me, it's the same thing as what I was writing about in, in Perfect Harmony. You know, these songs, which are actually did something rather clever and had mass appeal, which is why they're naff. And we're kind of fun and meaningless, you know what I mean? And so there's there's a hell of a lot of that stuff on here. So yeah, you're right. It was a it was a hinterland. It was it, Britpop hadn't kicked off. Not really. 1995, I think, is the Britpop year. Brunch had gone, and it was a period of uh, yeah. It was a, for me, I mean, I was kind of heavily getting into sort of all these old easy listening things and everything. Mm -hmm. But you know, which is pop of a sort. But um, you realise it was the the field was wide open for anything. It was waiting for something to happen, but sometimes they're the most interesting periods in pop music because actually you forget whilst we're waiting for the next big thing, there's a lot going on. And this, you know, this album you've chosen now, 26, it is an absolute kaleidoscope of all sorts of stuff. You know, particularly when we talk about indie, there's no recognisable, I use that in inverted commas, indie on this album. There's a lot of people trying to be, I don't know, it's, it's almost like a corona of indie <laughs> floating around. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's true. Yeah, I mean, it's a total mix. It's, it's really interesting. But a lot of these songs, I, I mean, I, the funny thing was, is when I went back to it, is how much I knew knew them. Yeah, I started thinking, I didn't know that I particularly liked Stack a Bow or <laughs> whoever it was at the time, but I just, I seem to know all these songs. So mm -hmm. I must have been watching Top of the Pops as well, I think. In some ways, reading your book and watching 1993 Top of the Pops, there's a great parallel um, between the kind of early 70s and the early 90s in that, you know, as we say, it, it was an open playing field for all sorts of genres. Yeah, you're completely right. Um, and also, it's there's there's another parallel in that in the, the early 70s, it was, like I said, the producers would um, come up with a song and then find, uh, um, make up a band to, to, pretend to, to pretend to sing it. Here, the producers, mostly German or Belgian, would uh, come up with a song and, you know, they, they were generally um, taking on club culture and rave, which had happened, and then find uh, someone to perform it. Whether they actually sang it or not, I don't know. I mean, who cares? <laughs> yeah. But there's lots of them, like Two Unlimited and all the Hadaway. You know, these were all, they were, it was all producers that came up with this stuff. And that's exactly the same as in, in 1970 when you had Tony McCauley and uh, Roger Cook and Roger Greenway, you know, coming up with this stuff and then, then finding the, the act. Yep. To uh, to perform it, the act is the least important important part of the of the equation. Yeah, they, who cares about them? You know, it's the um, it's the song that counts. Now twenty six, forty of the biggest hits around with the massive number one from Miklo, Dina Carroll, and the number one from UB forty. The Shaman, Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince, Culture Beat and the Pet Shop Boys. 
But Linda Carlisle, Janet Jackson, Frankie Goes to Hollywood and The Spin Doctors. 40 top chart hits. Now 26. That's what I call music. It was released on 15th of November 1993. Interestingly, the first to feature 40 tracks as well. And I think, again, because a lot of these tracks were getting shorter. Um, a lot of these Euro 7-inch edits you could cram onto, onto two CDs. It's got five number ones of the year. Interestingly, 1993 was also the 10th anniversary of the first Now album. To kind of celebrate that, now we're already beginning the retrospective series and we're looking back at all those different years as well. They actually released an album called Now 1993, released it in August before this album even came out, which is, wow. which is quite interesting. So yeah. they missed quite a lot of this out. But uh, 40 tracks, because of that, I think it's fair to say we're not going to be giving every single track on this album a particularly academic review um, because there are probably some we could skip past. Sure, yeah. Where do you want to start? I wouldn't mind starting with Go West by Pet Shop Boys. Fantastic song. Pet Shop Boys were an interesting one because they seemed to us, you know, to, to me and my friends who were all in our very early 20s at the time, like a really mainstream band who are also a really good, clever band. So I think that's what, why everyone feels about them. And Go West kind of captured it. It was, you know, it was something unreal about the whole thing but you know it was pop music but by people who'd studied pop music as opposed to just did it it wasn't then there's nothing primeval about Pet Shop Boys but you know really really clever and the reason I wanted to mention it is because I remember this is this was so typical of, of my lifestyle at the time the Pet Shop Boys were having a big party in the roundhouse there was absolutely no way that any of us would ever be invited so my friend Link Leisure, who uh, I mentioned earlier on, who is this incredible artist character, just total free spirit, he decided that we were going to forge the tickets. Now, how do you do that? Well, at my job at the publishers, there was a colour photocopier, which is a major, major deal at the time. It's like, this is the new technology. It's just amazing. Don't think I was really meant to use it for these purposes. But anyway, I told Link about it. Link managed, knew, knew someone who knew someone. In fact, I tell you who he knew. He knew the sculptor, Andrew Logan. And he convinced Andrew Logan to lend him his ticket. And he said, I'm not stealing it. I'll give it back to you. And he went. He came down to Dorling Kindersley <laughs> one evening when I, when I, after the, you know, I managed to just stay there when everyone had gone home. And using the colour photocopy, and it really took a lot of work. You know, it was he was using a scalpel and, um, you know, like, it just it's a very fine, fine uh, forgery going on there. He managed to forge, I think, three tickets. His boyfriend was too scared to go. He thought he was going to get, you know, he thought that we're going to get rumbled and he wouldn't go. So he said, me and Jane Link. And we went along to the party. It's actually really boring. Um, when we got there, it's like it's so much better than a night at Smashing because you know it's just a bunch of people standing around, which yeah. I, I've since found out that's what those parties are like. You know, yeah. just a just a big lodge, you know, who who's going to be there? But it was exciting nonetheless to get in, and so that's my Pet Shop Boy story. That's a good Pet Shop Boy story for watching yeah. tickets and getting into boring parties. That actually almost sounds like a Pet Shop Boy's title for a song. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. I think they'd be they'd be proud of us. Oh, I think so. So this got to number two. Couldn't get past Culture Beat and Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince, unfortunately, which is a bit of well, a... Fair enough. I mean, come yeah. on. And we'll no doubt come to them in time. But um, interesting story to this. Um, in 1992, the Pet Shop Boys were playing a charity gig at Hacienda, which was being hosted by Derek Jarman. And this was the track that they chose to play. And Crystal liked it that much. Let's record it. And became, I suppose, pretty much one of their biggest hits. 
Yeah, it was huge and very, you know, kind of undeniable, really, isn't it? That song. So it's, 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 you know, it's, it's got that marching quality, and yet because it's the Pet Shop Boys, you know, it's coming from another place entirely. So yeah, a brilliant song. Something which which I realised. I don't know if this is typical of um, now albums. They sort of do things in blocks. Yes. So it's not very subtle. So you know, suddenly <laughs> you're onto oh, there's this thing called R and B going on. It's not R and B as you know it. It's very slick and 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 upmarket. So you've got one night by M people, which is kind of R and B. You know, stay by Eternal, who are the the British. R&B band that was Louise Redknapp wasn't it um Easter Bennett or Esther Bennett uh, yeah. I think it was the, the person behind it and then you've got SWV um who was the ultimate US R&B you know sisters with voices yeah yeah totally I mean this stuff wasn't my thing at the time although now I listen to it and I think very it's all about the voice isn't it these these are people who can really sing I mean M people are sort of slightly different they were Obviously, you know, Heather Small's got a great voice, but M people, to me at the time, and maybe even now, I thought they were like square people making pop music. A bit yeah. like Clean Bandit. Do you know what I mean? Like kind of, <laughs> you know, like square people who think, right, let's, let's do pop music. Okay. It'd be good to have a bit of orchestra, orchestra in there too. So, yeah, so that's, they're, they're, to me, they kind of go together. And, and I mean, R&B has never gone away, but it's interesting that in 1993, you know, actually there's more later on, but there's, you know, a good chunk of that kind of slick 90s R&B, which of course was massively influential. The start of the whole vocal gymnastics movement. It was really the voice is the thing. And, you know, the songs here are pretty good, but it's, it's, it's that thing where it's all about, I mean, of course, most of them were gospel trained. I think it's SWV were. So, oh, yeah. so they really knew how to do it and people 1994 mercury music prize winners let's let's not forget for this album for elegant slumming yes that is true um, but then didn't was there somebody who should have won that year oh, I, yeah i think so it's like someone like it wasn't that the year which is everyone looks back and says yeah, yeah. but that was when yeah is it oasis it was definitely maybe. Definitely maybe. To be honest, I've got a funny recollection of even Mike Pickering looking a bit surprised. <laughs> when, yeah, when yeah. He's, it's an interesting parallel between um, Eternal and SWV because you've got the kind of the two sides of of the pond in some ways. Yes, yeah. You know, we were, we were chatting earlier about how we can take something and, and turn it into our own. There was a real sophistication around how Eternal was done. It was very good. Oh, it's very good. Yeah, it's very very well well put together. Um, and they were just school friends, I think. You know, yeah. so it was. It wasn't like it was put together by a um, by some shady Svengali. I mean, you know, it was no eternal. You know, you listen to state. That's a bloody good song, actually. Yeah, I've got to say, just as a. In fact, both of those songs are really, really good. They really stand up, and they don't sound dated. They sound, you know, they kind of sound like pop R and B that you could get today. So it's pretty impressive. Where do you want to go next? Well, I wouldn't mind going to The Shaman coming on because they, they, that's an example of something that happened at the time. I saw The Shaman when I was a um, teenager. I think I must have been about 18. And they weren't like this at all. They were a kind of psychedelic rock band. Yeah. Um, yeah. I saw them in some horrible thing in Hackney where like loads of sort of acid-fried people turned up and it was a bit Hawkwindish. you know what I mean? It was all sort yeah. of a bit scary and like bikers and, you know, some bloke was going around saying, don't take any bad acid. And I thought, oh, I'm only 18. So it was all a bit much. Then they obviously they had their rave epiphany and then you got coming on strong. I mean, you've got Mr. C doing his toasting or rapping, whatever it is, yeah. you know, 
they also had a connection with smashing. So Matthew Glamour, who's this, you know, the flamboyant host I mentioned, he had been a video director. Mm. He made one of their videos. And then there's a tragedy where a guy from The Shaman, he drowned, one of them drowned. Um, it was it was the shoot that Matthew was on. And he said, and at the time, I think it was very druggy as well. So yeah. it was horrible. So that was, I mean, that was an example of kind of exactly what you were just saying about this being a hinterland, because... There you have a song, which is, you know, rave has happened. Mm. Arts music is still going on, and there's lots of it about, but it wasn't very inspiring in, in by 1993. No. A lot of these clubs were kind of, they've become a bit sort of, you're you're allowed in, you're not allowed in, and people dressed the same. It was all kind of very simple clothes, and, you know, flamboyance was out. And so, again, that's why I love Smashing so much, and that whole movement, that got bit, I guess it's quite retro, but, you know, because it was fun. And and I think Mr. C had his own club called The End, yeah. which I went to a couple of times. I thought it was really boring. So, um, yeah, the shame is not really my thing, but, um, you know, an important part of our pop cultural history nonetheless. There seemed to be this, I don't know if it was called Indie Dance Crossover. It probably had a name. We might be a rock band, but we've also got somebody on decks at the back and yeah. we're wearing shorts and it was almost like we were trying on different suits to see what fitted and if you've got a dj and you've got guitars and you've got maybe some some scratch samples on there then something might stick well this was the time when people thought that the bands were really over you know yeah. um it was funny just before Britpop, but people really thought the bands had finished and there's no point in bands anymore yeah. i mean um so my friend lawrence who's in felt and denim and now go-kart mozart always had fantastic taste and he actually made the mistake he's denim he said he made the big mistake of thinking the bands were over so they never did gigs oh you know? and they finally did the supported pulp but he basically thought the gigs are over it's all about clubs now and you know this is just around the corner from Britpop. yeah so it was a, it was a strange time i mean yes there'd been that whole indie dance thing had been going on i mean of course you've got the happy mondays and stone roses who are you know doing grooves um like even it just indie bands before like the soup dragons even the pastels yeah. you know even the pastels got a bit group dancey for a while they yeah. all they're all at it the fool you know they, they, yeah. i think that they had that song telephone thing which is uh marky yeah. smith's attempt to attempt to like a dance track he still sounds lost in the middle of it though doesn't he <laughs> yeah he does <laughs> yeah, yeah of course Whirlwind um, Whirlwind. clubbing had become this big thing but bands were still knocking about there's a certain uncertainty, a certain kind of covering, covering your, you know, hedging your bets. Yeah, yeah, it was. And that's, I think, makes for an interesting snapshot of a year. Um, and obviously now do that very well, pulling all these tracks together. We mentioned Stacker Bow earlier. <laughs> this is a yes, song I, I had almost forgotten about. And it is, it, well, it's Swedish indie dance <laughs> rock. It's Swedish indie dance. I think it's his attempt to do this. Do you remember Stereo MCs? Yes, it's it like that. It's yeah. that kind of uh, that bloke from the stereo MCs who couldn't, who could never stand up straight. Remember, yeah. he always had to be like a perpetual crouch. They used to be a great band actually, um, called Freaky Realistic. They oh, did a yeah. song, called, yeah, Coochie Rider. Yeah. They were great. That was my friend Justin Anderson. He was another smashing person, and and they were kind of taking all these little, you know, it was it was a bit of dance music. A bit of seventies glam and pop, yeah. maybe yeah. a bit of a rap. I think they had a rapper in there. There's lots of that going on, and yeah, Stackerbo is definitely. He's now a, a, a very successful director. That's right. Yeah. Um, but at the time, he was uh, he was trying to do his stereo MCs thing. Well, it's funny you say that because I've got my notes in front of me here, and I've written Stackerbo a bit stereo MCs. 
<laughs> it really is. Yes. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's interesting that uh, Meatloaf is there. That was the biggest song of the year. That was the biggest hit of the year. And it's always a coup for these compilation albums, obviously, to kind of have these big hits on there. But yeah, Meatloaf just arrived out of nowhere with Jim Steinman on the back of the bike. And here we are. Here we are. I mean, that's that's the other interesting thing is that then you get these very, very big American names that do pop up on now. So if I'm going to link a couple, I mean, so you've got to do anything but love. I mean. I, I'd do anything but that. Was it? I'd do anything for love, but I won't do that. that the title? Hang on. I'd do anything for love, brackets, but I won't do that, close brackets. Yeah. 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 And so that's that's Meatloaf. And, you know, we all know that song. And it's, a, you know, it's a, it's a great. I mean, Meatloaf was good because I, I always thought Meatloaf had a bit of a sense of humour, whereas a lot of those, yeah. you know, big old rockers didn't. They took themselves too seriously. But even the title is kind of funny. But, you know, in a way, you could link that to Tina Turner who had already had her resurgence. You know, she'd, so she'd had the 70s, obviously, but then she'd had her big 80s resurgence. So, so now she's doing a cover of Disco Inferno. I mean, there's a club called Car Wash. I remember thinking it was a bit naff. I mean, you know, I love disco, but it seemed a bit a bit like, you know, finishing work on a Friday night, you know, off, office party. Do you know what I mean? It felt a bit like that. And in a way, Tina Turner doing Disco Inferno was a bit like that. And then Belinda Carlisle who, again, was absolutely massive. Yeah. Um, was a big, scary animal. And I was listening to this, and I was thinking, it's Alanis Morissette before Alanis Morissette has happened. It's that kind of big rock, big 80s pop rock sound. I don't know, she sounds like she's going to be a bit cross with you about something. You're not quite sure what. <laughs> um, it's sort of got that feel, do you know what I mean? You know, yeah. vaguely, vaguely, vaguely got a message. Not too much, just a little yeah. bit. Always a bit interested in those acts that manage to kind of go from the 80s to the 90s and kind of keep it going. I think in America, though, when they love you, they love you forever. We're very fickle in Britain. Oh, yeah. You know, we, we, we like to get, you know, we like to sort of, so I like them, but now they're, now they're, they're shit, yeah. you know. Whereas in America, they take much more convincing. But, you know, when you finally get there, yeah. I think they might have discovered Oasis now, you know. So, so you know, once, <laughs> once, once, once you get there, it's like dance music. They discovered dance music about 10 years ago, didn't they? EDM. Yes. Yeah. Um, in the middle of that, Two Princes by... Um, I've forgotten my goodness. Oh, yeah, Two Princes. Um, my Spin Doctors. Now, this to me is something now. It's, I'm sure if you look up 1993 on America on Google, a picture of the Spin Doctors will come up. I think you're right. They were kind of like those sort of sort of Americans who might like, have a hacky sack and, you know, like we're doing it in the park for about 10 years. <laughs> you know what I mean? They might have slightly dreadlocks, but not real dread. Do you know what I mean? A bit like that. No, it was, it was that. And it, it, it's something that thankfully didn't translate across. Grunge was on its way out and there was this kind of, I don't know, like I'm just seeing like kind of big coats and tweed and... and yeah, right, and, yeah. Yeah, and maybe even fingerless gloves. <laughs> yeah, I could see some fingerless gloves in there, yeah. They could be busking, but then they go back to, you know, like houses which are like 50 times as big as ours, you know, it's, it's that kind of thing. Well, that actually, that t- if, if you remember I was mentioning when I lived in this little flat in Notting Hill, it was two Americans who lived there, an American couple, and they were the archetypal, they're really nice, but they were archetypal rich kids with, you know, her, her dad was paying for the flat, I think. Mm. And I think she just used my rent money as her money to get by in like you know, just kind of live in London because the rent was definitely paid by her dad. And she used to play that song, Two Princes. She used yeah. to, I remember that. They used, yeah, they liked that one a lot. So that made me think of them. The man with the boy was called Ajax. 
She's a remarkable name. Can't remember her name, but Ajax was great. He was really nice. When we, when things got really bad, the, when I first moved in there, actually, I think it was before I got the job at Dolan Kindersley, and we were really broke. And I remember going up to the park, I guess it must have been in Holland Park, and looking in the fountain and looking at all the coins, looking at all the coins and thinking we could come back here at night and steal them all and probably get about £7.28. But it's also quite something that probably will result in some kind of curse. And something, you know, all those all those wishes that people have made. I mean, it was just something bad would happen. So yeah. I think we we you know, found an alternative means of of financial aid. Yeah, that reminds me of two princes. And and there was some quote I found, I think, from Rolling Stone. It would have been obviously, the doctors aren't trying to blaze new trails. They know we've been down this way with the Stones, Curtis Mayfield, and a few of the others. But the proof, plenty of it's in the party. Oh yeah, party boys. Oh, I'm sorry, I just don't want to go to a party with the spin doctors of the house band. Would you like to go to a party with the levelers? Um, probably not, actually. Because <laughs> that was the other thing that struck me. It was This was the age of, do you remember Krusty's? Oh, yeah. I mean, they're amazing because there used to be so many of them and they used to, you know, they used to be, there's kind of levels of crustiness, weren't there? There's the real yeah. proper dog on a string hardcore. Yeah. And I remember this would have been in 1991. So this was when I was with my old girlfriend. We came out of Camden Tube and there was this crusty in like one of those big old coats they used to wear and like massive dreadlocks and really dirty, a dog on a string, the whole thing, selling the big issue. And um, my then girlfriend looked at him closely and went, Jasper? (laughs) It was, it was, she's from Lewis in Sussex and he was like, this privately educated, you you know, young man. I thought that says it all. But yeah, you don't really get crusties anymore. It just didn't really resonate with me. In 1993? No, no. I mean, there was. I wanted to go as far away as possible. You know, it, I thought the whole thing sounded ridiculous. You know. So um, no, the levelers went really on my on my radar. I mean, no. I suppose what you've got here at the end of this CD, and we are talking CDs now because I don't know who was buying their 26 on cassette. Probably nobody. It's not indie. It's as close to what you'll get as traditional rock. Yeah. On here. <laughs> yeah. Well, it wasn't a great time for indie. You know, for a start, I, bet, I mean, I don't know. You're, you know, you you you'd be able to tell me much more, but I'm sure that when you get to '95, there's probably mm. loads of indie bands on there. Oh yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I mean, once you get to there, there was plenty of young men with guitars and yes. young women with guitars, and, and so it all changed. I mean, in a way, you know, and again, we keep coming back to that kind of strange dance music alternative crossover. There's one song which I think is really brilliant on here, and that's "Open Up" by Leftfield and John Lydon. That's a masterpiece. I remember this being struck at the time because John Lydon, you know, he hadn't really been around. I mean, we'd had Pill and mm. Pill were great. I wasn't really sure what he was up to by the 90s. No. Um, and then he appeared and he had this video where he was kind of John Lydon, sort of some, you know, not exactly the anarchic figure of old with this song, which is really smart, interesting, powerful dance music. And I was saying before that dance music is never really my thing, but you know, you hear a song like that, it's just so, so good, so clever, so well done. Yeah. Very catchy, but really kind of almost scary. You know, he's still got that John Lydon wail that he does, which no one else can do. Yeah. Um, so things like that. I mean, the other, when you were saying about bands, I'd really gone off indie stuff at this point. And, and I suppose the one that sums it up for me that I really didn't like was James, who are here, and that's Laid 
this is really just prejudice now. You know, it's really ter- a terrible assessment by me, but I've forgotten the name of the singer. Tim Booth. Tim Booth. Yeah, he used to dance about in this kind of floppy way in big shirts. Like he didn't, like his spinal cord had been removed. And remember that really annoyed me. And then the song was like about sex, but it's very unsexy. Um, and so there's a line with like, this bed is on fire with passion and love. I was like, oh, mm-hmm. get the fire extinguisher. When I was at college, Every time um, Sit Down came on in the indie disco, guess what everyone did? Oh, well, I don't need to tell you, do I? Yeah. All those natural science students sitting down. It was just horrible. Yeah, it was. I mean, it's just pure prejudice because I'm sure lots of people love James and, you know, they're really great. But at this point in my life, I didn't want to be involved in that world. I was, I was young. I had no money. I was discovering this kind of exciting underworld of, of people who like pop music and kind of liked the history of it you know and love the 60s and 70s and all this stuff going on and that's what i wanted to be a part of and although this 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 you know this is obviously representing mainstream pop there are various aspects here that i I really came to appreciate at the time looking back at these albums from now it'd be very easy to rewrite 1993 and yes. that actually it was all about modern life was rubbish and it was all about Sinetti. Yeah, it wasn't. All, yeah. all of the artists I was listening to, but actually yeah. this album tells you this is what people were actually buying as well. Well, I think that's a great time, if, we, if, if I may, to talk about the incredible Euro explosion. Yes. We've got, in a row, Had Away, What Is Love, Masterpiece, Two Unlimited, Maximum Overdrive, brilliant. Culture beat Dr. Vane. Well, that's off the scale, you know. And this is these songs. I remember at the time thinking, I love them, they are utterly ridiculous. Yeah, but you can't deny them. Do you know what I mean? You know, and they they tend to be, as far as I can tell, they Germany seemed to be the real, you know, the hotbed of, yeah. of Euro trash. Um, it seemed to be, you know, just at the heart of it. I mean, two unlimited were from Belgium, yeah. I couldn't think of anything that came from Belgium, except maybe, you know, the EEC and Tintin. There's just, you know, nothing. But then Anita, I know, I think it's her name, Anita from Two Unlimited. Yes. She'd been a traffic warden in Amsterdam. Just the perfect job for, for a Euro raver. It's just brilliant. And, you know, you had that guy who's, you know, the rapper. But this is Euro rap, you know, it's the, the kind of the campus rap of all time. Yeah. Um, and then Culture Beat. Just this, you know, where they they got actually with Culture Beat, I think they got a very good singer. But in Hadaway, What Is Love, which is probably my favourite, this I think is just genius, and it just reminds me of um, of you know those early seventies producers. So you know you've got the guy Hadaway, but then they need a female vocal. Well, what do we do? They, they got <laughs> there's, there's the sample of the female vocal from that noted compilation CD Data File One. Oh. It's a that's where it came from i mean it's obviously you know there's some gems on there but you know just the stock samples so they didn't have to pay anything or like pay yeah. very very little it's just brilliant that run of Eurodance on the second compact disc probably says more now to me i at the time was djing in clubs and was probably trying my best to avoid tracks like this because i was trying to be cool how would you describe it? Um, hard house and all these kind of things and stuff like oh, that. Okay, the proper dance music. Yeah, proper, yeah, but but you know, in inverted commas. Whereas the punters were asking me for these tracks, and I was like, they're really good. And now, thirty years later, these tracks actually probably are fun. 
they are joyful, they are perfect pop tracks. Oh, they're perfect pop tracks. It'd be like, let's get ready to rumble. You know, it's, it's a great song. So yeah, yeah, they're very, very good pop tracks, but they are dance tracks. And what I love about them is that it's, it's that kind of, you know, when you go to like a, a European city and it's all very like Cologne or somewhere and it's all very new and mm. clean and, it's, you know, it's like that. And you think, oh, what do people do around here for fun? And then you find out that, you know, Europe are, there's something about all these tracks that really remind me of that you know it's sort of sterilized yeah because in some ways i can see the same kind of lineage from the types of stuff frank farian was doing in the 70s oh totally frank farian was the master you know frank farian got into so much trouble over um millie vanilli not singing on their own records but never bothered boney m that's what i never understood boney m everyone knew they didn't sing they were a bunch of you know models and dancers and it's weird it's that lack of pretension in this music it's not yeah. trying to be anything other than just this is what we th- this is the pop music and i think that's why at the time it was derided so much in the uk press oh god well it's it's got a total lack of authenticity which which actually becomes a benefit you know it's there's nothing i i can't stand like earnest authenticity it drives me crazy you know so so actually i love the complete trashiness of it all but really well done that's the thing they're actually really really cleverly done songs because they make you want to dance and sing along because the proper dance music doesn't you don't really sing along to it, do you? You just lose your lose yourself to it. Yeah. But this they they make you dance, sing along, and wear a nice outfit at the same time. So in a way, it's perfect pop music. Yeah. Would you like an interesting fact about Mr. Veen? Yes, please. It was the first number one single not to be available as a seven inch. Why is that then? Don't know. I don't think they made it as a seven inch. And I think by that point, either people were buying it as a twelve inch or were buying it on CD single. CD single, that's what it is. Yeah. Because there was a radio edit, you know, it was a three-minute pop song. Yep. I mean, obviously, so there's a longer one for the clubs, but, the, you know, that's yep. very interesting. Yeah, so the CD single, God, I remember when they died off. Thankfully. I mean, I can't imagine now, again, as as the father of a 13-year-old, asking us to go and buy one song for £5 that also has <laughs> six remixes of the same song that you're never going to play. Oh, I, I mean, the, the record industry is famous for absolutely milking the punters in any way possible. But that was the, it was the golden age of it, really, wasn't it? I want to talk a bit about Urban Cookie Collective. Well, everyone, oh, yeah. Everyone remembers Key the Secret. And yeah, great song. I had to go back, but it feels like heaven actually works exactly the same way. Yes, it's a really, really good song. So I didn't know much about Urban Cookie Collective. I found out it's this guy called Rohan Heath who'd been in various bands. That's right, yeah. yeah. And the woman... Diane Charlemagne, who died, sadly, in 2015. Not very old. I think she was about 50, 51. Yeah. It's a really good example of the genre, isn't it? I mean, it's not Euro. No. But it's, um, it's yeah. It's, what would you call it? Is it? I mean, I guess it's just pop. It's kind of, I don't know. Is it Euro-adjacent? I don't know. It's, it's it is not... Euro-adjacent. Uh, Euro-curious. Yeah, kind of looking in, kind of popping yeah. over and saying. <laughs> exactly. Popping into Euro Boys Club, but not actually going the whole way. Yeah. Diane Charlemagne as well, which which I didn't know until I started digging around, was also the vocalist on Inner City Life by Goldie. Oh, wow. That kind of makes sense. It's, which actually, when you, when, you, when you listen to the tracks, you think, absolutely, yeah, very much so. Yeah. That's an interesting one. Yeah, I'd say that's, a, I think you're right. I think Euro adjacent is the way to put it. It, it fits, it, it, it does go alongside Hadaway and all the rest of it. It's maybe slightly more credible, if that yeah. is the right word to use. I think everyone knew that Hadaway and those people were just poptastic fun. You know what I mean? You don't, you don't, yeah. not, nothing to take seriously in any way whatsoever. Urban Cookie Collective, you know, they're definitely not going to be lined up there with the Nick Caves of this world. But I mean, I think they had a slight, uh, you know, maybe the enemy would give them five out of 10 rather than one. 
a lackluster five out of ten. You know, we're talking about this Euro adjacent. I'm now going to pitch a sitcom which is about a British Euro house act and a, a European house act living next door to each other and the great japes they get up to trying to. It's trying an excellent to, idea. I think so. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm also complaining about, complaining about the music and looking over the fence and trying to steal beats and all that kind I of. I think stuff. it's a brilliant idea. Yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to work on that one. <laughs> We're kind of getting to the end of the album, and we kind of touched on this earlier because there's a bit more what you would potentially call sophisti R and B. I don't even know if that's a phrase, but there's it does come back into that. Yeah, let's jump a bit. We've got Soul to Soul, we've got Lisa Stansfield in there, and also Gabrielle. Out of all those people, the one I really like, I don't know how to say her second name, Lena Fiagbi. Lena Fiagbi. This is interesting. Yeah, I thought that was a great song. I remember that. I mean, to be honest with you, okay, so uh, on that run, you've got, well, Take That, Awful, Going Nowhere, um, which is Gabrielle, Pop Soul, you know. Then you've got Soul to Soul. I think Soul to Soul by then had, you know, they'd been really exciting, really, really exciting. They were were around when I was at university, um, and they'd got a shop in Camden, this club, and it's all going off for Soul to Soul. By this point, I think they'd kind of, the magic had gone. Lisa Stansfield seemed like very much kind of mum music. But um, Lena Siagby, I thought that's a brilliant song. It reminded me, you know, Rotary Connection. Yeah, yeah. It reminded me of Rotary Connection. I've always loved, like I said earlier, I've always loved the 70s. And at this point, in, in the early 90s, I, I would have been listening to a lot of what's now termed psychedelic soul, mm. you know, which Rotary Connection are definitely part of Parliament Funkadelic, all that kind of stuff. Yep. The Chambers Brothers, There's, you know, there's loads, loads of that stuff. Although it's not psychedelic, I thought it had something to that quality, that kind yeah. of glorious quality. Oh, yeah. It's what was, you know, you were describing about the Smashing Club. And, you know, it was mm. that kind of looking back and cherry picking, yeah. that, you know, the kind of best parts of pop. You could almost imagine a singer like Lena Fiag be releasing this in 67 or 70. Oh, completely. completely. it would work exactly the same way. It was very, the other thing which I think was interesting about this time was that in terms of, clubs and everything you've got to remember that britain was in a recession mm. so a hell of a lot of um clubs that have been quite flash in the 70s were now basically empty so some enterprising young club promoters could could find a club on a wednesday night when it was empty you know maximus in leicester square or somewhere like that you know with its kind of you know mirrored uh, walls or like a light up dance floor and yeah. or, or you know kind of um silver palm trees and all this sort of stuff no, I think that really, really changed at Britpop because by 95, suddenly there were all these private clubs popping up everywhere. Yeah. The Groucho Club became the heart of Britpop. Previously, no self-respecting lover of Rotary Connection or, or Bowie or whatever would, would be going to a private club. They'd be going to clubs where there'd be a total weird mix of people, but people who made an effort, dressed up and, and sort of, you know, had a touch of glamour, but a kind of glamour they'd made up themselves. Mm-hmm. So it was a very interesting time you know i think the recession i think recessions always create interesting creativity so this is it was you know was that period and especially because there is no defined you know the scenes weren't defined you know in in the mainstream at least so there was a lot going on and it was it was there's a lot to play for so yeah and it's something like that lena fiagby i mean i don't think she was quite you know belonging to the smashing world but you could hear that thing you know you could hear that quality where people were discovering Burt Bacharach and Sergio Mendes you know cool old cool music but quite often sophisticated music not just the rubber underground you know 
there's two interesting, would you say, backward looking? I don't know. Maybe that's the wrong phrase. But you've got Lenny Kravitz here and Jamiroquai as well. Yeah. Which, you know, it would be fair to say borrowed their influences from the past, shall we say. Oh, completely. Lenny Kravitz, he was undone by his own vanity, I think, because he spent too much time hanging out at fashion shows and then complaining when people, you know, going out with models and then complaining in interviews when people only asked him about clothes and models. But he started out as someone who played every single instrument yeah. on his album, was, you know, loved Hendrix, loved Prince, was very, very musical. Jamiroquai is kind of the same. He sort of fell for the same traps, but he was really interesting character. You know, he came up through acid jazz, which is that early 90s phenomenon of kind of, you know, sort of new mod movement, I suppose you call it. And he used to go to the club that I, the first one I went to, which I mentioned called Tong Kung Fu, which was great. And they'd play all kinds of weird old groovy jazz or soundtracks absolutely across the board. And he used to turn up there. So he sort of came from quite an interesting scene. Mm. I think he did really love, you know, great funk music and soul and jazz, and he really did appreciate it. And of course, he had a good voice, but he sort of became a parody of himself. Uh, so, But it, they were redolent in a mainstream way of something that was happening at the time, which is a lot of looking back to the 70s. Yeah, It was probably the first time, I mean, it, you know, when I was growing up, I suppose I was really growing up in the 80s, everyone went on about how naff the 70s were. By the 90s, it wasn't that at all. There's lots and lots of dressing up. And if you could find some old Bieber, for example, or, you know, Ozzy Clark or whatever, you're doing pretty well. You find some, you know, a good pair of platform boots and all the rest of it. So it, it had changed. And so I think, yes, that those people we mentioned are kind of a mainstream product of something that was going on, which was definitely an interest in the music and fashion of the 70s. Maybe it's not so much the you know, the politics, but the, mm -hmm. certainly the, the superficial elements. I can remember listening to or hearing Jamiroquai and it just made me go back to more Stevie Wonder. At that point, uh, rediscovering albums like Innovisions and fulfilling his Yeah, me album. too. Yeah. I remember that. I completely forgot Talking Book, yeah. Innovisions. Yeah. I remember going back to that and even Marvin Gaye, you know, because these albums had just been around yeah. and, you know, you sort of took them for granted. And I remember that period listening to them again and thinking, God, this is so good. I think it was around about that time that I first discovered Here My Dear, the funky space reincarnation, and just thinking, I don't need to buy any Jamiroquai albums. Yeah, yeah, you don't need to. It's all there. There's a lot of other people. There's um, a guy called Terry Callier who, who disappeared and got rediscovered. There's a, 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 one of my favourite records, was which they used to play a track uh, called Cherry Stones by Eugene McDaniels, and that was a favourite, Tung Kung Fu and Smashing. And, yeah. you know, that kind of rare groove thing. Well, I guess that was slightly early wasn't it It's was probably about 1990 but mm. it was discovering all this great old stuff i think red groove the problem again it's got a bit elitist took itself a bit too seriously that's why i love this period when you could mix in that stuff but also you know have had away this is this you know what is love yeah you know there's something appealing about that just want to very briefly talk about bjork because bjork's on here with david arnold yeah. um yes I probably listened to the debut album by Bjork more than any other album in 1993 because it just was incredible. It was also, you know what's fascinating about um, debut by Bjork? It's one of those albums, and I think I would put definitely maybe by Oasis and the Stone Roses album in this category. Everywhere you went, you know, you go around to people's houses mm. and they'd have it. And yeah. it was like, you didn't get sick of it. It yeah. was really, really good. It was like, you know, because it, especially when you're young, you have a bit of musical snobbery and everything, and, and you kind of go, oh, God, living in a box by living in a box or whatever. 
But there was something about that album that would cross over. It was a bit like my parents. You know, when I was a kid, you go around to people's houses and they, their parents always had Tapestry by Carol King. Yeah. You know, and then finally you get around to listening to it. And you think, God, it's brilliant. And it was a bit like that with debut. It was just there. It was really, really accessible while being yeah. inventive. And yeah. I suppose the last person to do that, it's very obvious, but was Kate Bush, you know, who, yeah. who, who found a way to put experimental pop into the mainstream time yeah. and again. Looking back, you wouldn't have put all your money on the singer from the Sugar Cubes being this, you know, and in some ways almost kind of being a kind of linchpin between this early to mid 90s to what comes later on because she became so creative. Bjork was one of those people that was around. So I remember seeing her around. I mean, you know, it was always exciting to spot a famous person, but like Jarvis Cocker was always around. You'd always see him, you know, he'd pop up here and there. But Bjork was around. I remember there was a really great club um, called Anoka, which was, it was, it was basically, it was all Asian guys and women who were combining aspects of Asian music with drum and bass. Hmm. It was really, really inventive. Uh, Talvin Singh was, was yeah. the guy who was behind it. And there's a guy called State of, who called himself State of Bengal. And Bjork used to turn up. This would, would have been in 93, I think. And it was it was really exciting. So, yeah, Bjork was very much a part of things going on. And, yeah, I think the, the, the Bjork song is great. I mean, it's it was I didn't know this, that it was from The Young Americans, a, a film. Yeah. Uh, and I, yeah. No. I've never seen that film. What's of interest is it's, it's David Arnold doing prototype Bond. It completely is. It was the time when people were rediscovering John Barry. You know, Michelle Legrand, Enormous and Fam, you know, good good film soundtracks. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a really interesting song. It's probably, now is not cool by its very nature, but Bjork is kind of is one of the cool ones, isn't it? It's slipped oh. in there. I'd say that and Open Up by Left Field, John Lydon. That's the two that, that for me completely stand out because, you know, yeah. when, when Now captured those hits, they really did give you it. And they were those big ones. Probably more than any other album that year, well, apart from debut, was The Buddha of Suburbia. When you were chatting about your own upbringing, and I was kind of remembering, well, first of all, that TV show, but but also that album, and just how incredibly brilliant Boy was on it. But Suburbia was really important for me. The mm. book by Henry Fresh was fantastic. I remember reading that and thinking, here's a book that I could write. Not saying I could write it, but it made it seem possible. It, I related to it. The, the story of the Buddha of Suburbia was, was rather similar to what happened to my father when he had his spiritual yeah. revelation and joined the Brahman Kumaris. Um, but also Bowie. I mean, Bowie was really unfashionable at the time. Yeah. You know, this is the thing people forget. We love Bowie, but we love 70s Bowie. You know, we loved Hunky Dory. We loved Ziggy Stardust. Low was a massive album. But The Buddha of Suburbia was a, was a really nice album. It was really thoughtful. It was reflective. It's kind of quite melancholic and downbeat. And it very much captured the, the mood. And the other thing is, occasionally I used to do extra work. And I got extra work on The Buddha of Suburbia. Oh. And I was meant to be a punk. I was jumping around, and I, and I remember them saying, "I remember I had hair like this, you know, about this length, maybe a bit longer." Um, and I said, I, I, "I'm not sure if I really look like a punk. I mean, my is my hair a bit long?" And, and the the casting director, of the costume, you know, the, the the woman in wardrobe said, "Punks weren't very sophisticated in 1976. They're a mixed bag. It's fine." And I realised that we were just the ones that turned up, you know, and they needed to get, they could got enough people who look like punks. That's a great story. It was, and it, it was an interesting year for Bowie because he'd done the Black Tie White Noise at the beginning of the year, which was, it, it was a return to form-ish, but it was a bit kind of... It's nobody's favourite though, is it? You no. Know, and then this, 
this Buddhist suburbia like arrived six months later, and it was like, what? <laughs> it was it's just, really nice, quite low key as well. It's yeah, quite low-key. even yeah. the TV the TV show is big, but um, yeah. it was quite a low key album. It, not not like hits or anything, but yes. So yeah. that was Buddhist suburbia was a very you. I completely forgot about that actually, but that was actually that was a very important part of that year for me. <laughs> Let's just finish off by very briefly mentioning Janet Jackson. That's the way love goes. Got to number two in the UK, number one in the US for eight weeks. Great chart fact. It's the longest running number one of any Jackson family. It's amazing. It's a great song. Incredibly influential. Yeah. Probably, you know, if you think of most major American female pop stars, it sort of set the template for that style that they, Ariana Grande, definitely. The style that they do where they, you know, that kind of, Big vocalising, very high notes, low notes, and sexy, but yeah. in a way that is not threatening. Marketed sexiness, I suppose, but it sort of is sexy. You know, it's not. It's something. You know, something convincing about it. Out of all of these songs, you know, it's like you're saying this was an interim period, but Janet Jackson was pushing towards the what the future pop, mainstream pop R and B would be. Yeah, the clues are there. Um, and actually, it was there's a lot of red herrings on there as well because a lot of what people thought was potentially going to be the kind of ongoing next big thing were, were kind of dead ends. And actually, it, doctors, I'd say that was such well, a big yeah. song, yeah, yeah, you know. Whereas, actually, instead, it's your SWV, Janet Jackson, the kind of impact of what Eurodance would become were the big things, oh, very much so, yeah. Well, Eurodance, really, I mean, if you watch if you watch Eurovision now, it hasn't really ever changed, has it? It's basically. No. Yeah, it's basically Eurodance. It's very, very tacky, very camp, very funny, um, entertaining. So yeah, it's 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 an interesting time. It's a it's a snapshot, but it's it's I think you said earlier on, you have an idea of what the nineties are like, and then you actually look at now and you see the reality. Probably if someone said, Well, ninety three, probably people would say, Oh yeah, yeah, well that blur suede pulp. Yeah, and they were there. That going on at this time of my life when I wasn't going to see bands when I was, like I said, I mean, you, cause you know, you could get into gigs clubs for free if when you know, once you knew people and stuff and if you, you know, you had a good, good outfit. Um, so it didn't cost anything. I hadn't drank anything at the time. It was a way of living in the city and just, you know, having this exciting life on very, very little money while discovering a lot. Yeah. Um, and this, Funnily enough, really was the soundtrack to it. It's you know when when you asked me to do this here, and I was thinking about it, and I thought, well, '93 was a very important year for me, but I won't know any of the songs. And then I started listening to them. I thought I know every single bloody one. I couldn't <laughs> believe it. Which of these tracks then would you take if you were if you were going to take a handful as kind of a memento of 1993 from this album? What would you what would you choose? Well, obviously, I'd be crazy not to choose "What Is Love" by Hadaway because it's it's you know that would be perverted not not to choose such a masterpiece i would choose open up because not that i was knew much about left field but that kind of twisted my head around a little bit that, that song it sort of took me into a different place i would say i'd probably choose i'd probably choose coming on by the shaman because i remember that i remember them being part of but i would kind of remember they sort of seemed to touch on all these different things that i I, I was one step away from. And then I think I'd choose Go West by the Pet Shop Boys yeah. because it was such an important memory to sneak into their party and to realise the best time 
that you can have may well be the one that you helped create as opposed to the one where you think all the beautiful people are and uh, you're missing out because you're some nobody and all the famous people are here. Um, and then going there and it's rubbish and think and that was when I realized yeah actually it's more important to find your own magic rather than kind of hope that someone else will provide it for you Will thank you so much for uh, heading back to 1993 and revisiting some of these tracks off now 26 thanks for having me and I have to say I've really enjoyed going back there and uh, I'm now going off to find out what Hadaway is doing right now for a living what a great plan for the evening Will thanks very much thanks Ian take care 